Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some headlines. We're going to talk about how do you rest in this season. And then we're joined by 17-year-old founder of Chain Reaction Games, Braden Gogus. You're listening to The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good. Happy Friday to you all. I'll share holidays later, Brian. Fret not. Mm-hmm. I know it's becoming your favorite part of the segment, which I don't know if I should take personally or not. Your favorite part isn't talking with me; it's just hearing of the absurd holidays. You're talking. You're li- you're you're the one talking it through. Yeah, but it, that's not that's not a conversation. Wasn't that like the word that we used ad nauseum when we first started? Like we want to. This is about a conversation. A that conversation. was conversation. <laughs> Just always, always showed up, though. I don't. We don't have time for banter in this segment. We'll save the banter for later in the segment because I have some what headlines. Time? That's right. Here we go. Uh, briefly, I'll let you choose. Whatever headline you want to take from these. What do I have? Like five here. Yeah, let's take the what is going to stir the pot the most here. Francis okay. Collins, uh, who is brilliant. Uh, he is a prominent Christian researcher. But importantly for our discussion, he serves as the director of the National Institute of Health. He's essentially... Uh, Anthony Fauci's boss. I I believe I'm correct on that. Francis Collins. Uh, And Francis Collins came out in the Christian headlines. It says Francis Collins urges Christians get vaccinated from COVID-19 out of love of neighbor. Uh, He said, here's a great opportunity for Christians to say, let's really look at the truth of the situation and evaluate what the evidence demonstrates. Uh, He did this all in a webcast sponsored by Russell Moore's organization, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So, uh, Ian, I think this uh, is uh, there are going to be many more vaccination conversations, I think, going on on our radio show, in our churches and around our culture. But this is Francis Collins, who, who many people would say is, I don't know how to put it, the leading Christian scientist that there is, not the denomination. I mean, Christian <laughs> scientist. I think that's Tom Cruise, and, uh, actually. Is it? <laughs> yeah, and, and Francis Collins is at the top of that list and uh, a believer who is who is this high up in kind of the science scientific food chain here. And uh, he's saying, hey, Christians, you need to get vaccinated not only for your own health, but for love of neighbor. I'll be I'll be very interested to see how, what people think of that reasoning. Scientific food chain sounds like evolution to me, <laughs> I like Brian. That one. And I, I like uh, that one. <laughs> I also like that you said vaccination conversation. Like it's gonna, like it's gonna be a segment now. We should, we should create a a little start today. Create a little rejoin here. By the way, this is completely off topic. You you saw the video of the guy that created like a like a metal riff to Kenneth Copeland talking about COVID, and I saw someone retweet it and it said "Rage Against the Vaccine," and I lost my mind. That to me, funnier in my mind than it actually is to anybody else. All right, so I'll keep this one brief. With regards to COVID news, this is from uh, Reuters, or as I like to say, Reuters. Uh, <laughs> as U.S. COVID-19 deaths shatter records, leaders plead for more mask wearing. So Washington uh, here, Reuters, U.S. leaders urgently call on Americans to wear masks and threaten even more drastic stay-at-home orders after deaths from the coronavirus set a single-day record with two people dying every minute. More than 213,830 new cases and 2,861 deaths were reported on Thursday, according to Reuters' tally of official data. Um, I, know, I mean, I know that we were joking a lot in the segment already. That is so sobering. And it is. It is, it's bizarre to me that more people don't seem to be talking about those numbers. Or maybe uh, maybe I'm just listening to you know different voices or hanging out in the wrong, the wrong digital yeah. rooms. So, I mean, how, how do those numbers strike you? Uh, they're overwhelming, but on some level, it, it, it kind of reminds me of what we talked about yesterday with Paul Jacobs at Food for the Poor. 
uh, where numbers become a little bit numbing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just kind of hear numbers and it, it, it uh, sadly starts to become a little bit of white noise because the numbers become, uh, you get a little bit used to them, which is sad to say with numbers that big, but uh, man, I don't know. Did you see that clip today flying around Twitter of uh, the debate? Those two guys arguing on CNBC. Did you see that today? Mm-mm. Uh, you'll see it. If not one guy just going off about masks and, and we need to get rid of masks. And you just realize that there are people all over the spectrum right now. And that's kind of why where we're at right now. Uh, but yeah, the numbers are just overwhelming. They're staggering. I saw it today. They said the, the numbers yesterday were greater than nine 11. And you're like, Oh my gosh. And so, uh, yeah, really crazy. The next article here, Christian post, uh, deals with what's Christmas going to be like. It says with more spiritual reflection and less gifts, Most Americans say COVID-19 will change Christmas. It says more spiritual reflection, fewer gifts, and less in-person church attendance are among several ways in which a majority of Americans say the new coronavirus has changed the way they will celebrate Christmas in 2020. This was a LifeWay research uh, study that, that, that has just come out. And, you know, there was so much talk around Thanksgiving and the way Thanksgiving, uh, do I gather with people, don't I? Now, Christmas... Uh, I would say is is going to be that and even more because Christmas, yeah. uh, you know, you gather with family or think about, you know, uh, I'm guessing you feel this way at your church. But at my church, maybe the fit, this and Easter, but maybe my favorite moment in the in the calendar of our mm. church is lighting the candles on Christmas Eve. And now what are Christmas Eve services going to look like, if at all? Yeah. And what does it look like to gather with family? I think uh, it's going to be really hard, man. Christmas in and and then we're we're going to turn on the television or the radio and just hear all these debates and you should do this, you shouldn't do this. I think yeah. uh, if Thanksgiving was hard, I think Christmas is going to be that much harder. So here's some of what they found: sixty five percent of Americans will make at least one change to their Christmas plans as a result of the pandemic. Uh, there's other stats here. It says thirty five percent of Americans said they will spend less time visiting with family this Christmas. Just under half, forty seven percent, said family gatherings will remain the same. While thirteen percent plan to visit with their loved ones even more, so that's a that's a pretty interesting. It's a bunch of stats, by the way, so it doesn't make for great radio, but it is posted on the Facebook page because I do think it it is a really interesting conversation and that is kind of front and center for everybody right now. We're probably not going to have time to get to all three of these, but do you want to you want to give us a, a quick flyover? Uh yeah, hold on, let me click that one. Christians Against Poverty, who we've had on this show many mm-hmm, times, mm-hmm. we're partners. Uh, says. Just 7% of young people seeking debt help, which I found to be fascinating. It says new data from uh, Christians Against Poverty, or CAP, suggests that those aged between 18 and 25 are the least likely to seek help when they are in debt. With the pandemic affecting jobs and livelihoods, the charity is urging more young people to come forward and access help. And so, you know, you might be thinking, well, where's their debt in that age anyway? Well, well you've got COVID-19 and, and all that's affecting part-time jobs. And, and, you know, I think about my own daughter, who, as we were talking about jobs, it's just hard to find jobs. But then that's also prime age for uh, for college loans. Yeah. And so once you start putting those things together and, and uh, Christians Against Poverty saying it, people in that age demographic, they need to start asking for help and they need to get their arms around uh, debt at that age and talk to people and get help with it because it's obviously only going to compound as it gets older. So I found that 
to be interesting. Although when I think back to when I was 18, uh, between 18 and 25, I'm not sure I was thinking a lot about debt. Right. Uh, but I also wasn't probably in the debt that a lot of unfortunately people in that age demographic, again, because of student loans and other things are finding themselves. Well, and just to say it out loud, like we, we haven't just had them on the show. We, the, they're partners. And what the Correct. work that the work that Correct. they do is phenomenal. If you've never heard of it Christians is. Against Poverty, I highly, highly recommend that you check them out. Began in the UK, but they're right now here in Chicagoland. Our church has partnered with them and the work that they're doing. I it's it's hard to imagine even a time where like their ministry and work could be like more significant, like, okay. more important. So I highly recommend you check them out. I got I have another one from uh, from Relevant that maybe we'll put in a, a different uh, segment next week. Nine common myths Christians believe at Christmas. It's a great read. It's it might make some people angry. I'll just end with this because I think it's uh, I think it's good news and. Our uh, producer has played this song on the organ at Wrigley. True story behind Corey Asbury's reckless love to be subject of feature film. You want to give us 20 seconds on that? Uh, I think that the title gets at it, though. It says that reckless love is set to be to uh, come to life with writer uh, Jay Mills Godlow, producer Devon Franklin, uh, and a first look deal as uh, so they're making a movie out of the song. The story behind this song that was the tops of the Christian song charts for 18 weeks in 2018 uh, which is just wild. It, it's wild that a song, I'm, I doubt that this uh, Corey Asbury wrote the song going, oh, I hope this is a movie someday. Uh, but this is a song that that was all over the radio. Lots of churches were playing in, continue to, and now it's getting made into a movie. It'll be interesting to see uh, what that movie's like. Yeah. And all, as always, those uh, articles are all posted up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think. Coming up next, a topic that's been really near and dear to my heart in this season, how to find rest in restless times. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. This feels like an evergreen topic for this season at the very least, which is probably not the definition of evergreen. Um, but the idea of rest, <laughs> you know, which is odd because I think at the beginning, plenty of people maybe felt like, gosh, I'm getting too much rest. You know, because of the pandemic, I'm just at home all the time. That wasn't my experience. I don't think it was yours either, Brian, but I know plenty of people maybe felt more rested than they had in a while, but it does feel like, man, this restlessness that we all feel now, how do we actually find rest in this restless season? And uh, I just found this article by Joshua Lang to be pointed and timely and interesting. And like always, I don't agree with all of it, but I I thought it was well-written. So why why don't you get us into it a little bit? Yeah, at Relevant Magazine, he said, most of us have been there. We wake up, somehow peel ourselves out of the bed and reach for our phone. By the time we've scrolled through junk mail, uh, news, socials, and all the wonderful worrisome or weird things to be found on the internet, the clock has moved much further than we thought. A quick dash to the bathroom for a quick hygiene check done. Now to work, school, or any number of demanding activities. Hours later, we can turn, uh, we can turn switch back into uh, non-work mode, finally. However... We still have to make dinner, take out the trash, hopefully spend some time with our family and friends and still try to manage some me time after we put on the streaming service. And we've gone a few five episodes deep laying in bed and on our phone until midnight. We had just enough time for a quick verse and a prayer. (laughs) Then we awake again just to say, I'm so tired. I don't have enough time. (laughs) Every day we're faced with challenges. Our social climate is changing. The culture's changing. The way we go through daily lives is changing. It causes us some discord within us and uneasy restlessness, always tired, always out of time, just plain drained. The things we have to do and want to do every day are not bad. They only drain us when we let them. 
It's easy to become emotionally, mentally, and spiritually spent. How can we find rest in a day that seems to have none? The solution is as simple as three practical steps that you can start doing. So it's going to be a simple answer. He's going to give us three answers here. Uh, but Ian, we've talked a lot about this, yeah. this exact topic, but uh, he did do a good job of describing how a lot of our lives uh, are unnecessarily hectic, basically because we're on our phones or we're doing this or doing this, uh, and then all the other stuff that causes it to be hectic legitimately. I think that's a pretty good description of how a lot of us feel our lives kind of go day to day. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting when people talk about going on a social media fast or a, a cell phone fast, almost always one of the first observations people make is, I, I have so much more free time. Like we don't think about yeah. the time yep. suck that some of these things are because it's like 10 seconds here, 90 seconds there, three minutes there. But what you don't realize is that all adds up. It's why I think doing things mm -hmm. like, um, you know, those apps you can get that will measure, they'll keep track of your screen time. So it's a lot like finances, right? Like, oh, a coffee here, a little snack there. But when you actually add it up over the year, and you're like, that was $5,000 worth of stuff I didn't need. I think I think screen time and some of these other things are the same way. They seem so insignificant, but they, they can slowly kind of rob us of whatever margin right. we had. So I like this list of three. Number one, prioritize what really matters. The first step is to prioritize what is most important and drop what is not. Uh, God is the perfect example. He created earth before he made humans. He could have made anything else first, like a tree floating in space or a human for that matter. <laughs> he prioritized preparing a home for us before he made us. Is God a top priority for an, or an afterthought once you have spent all the good hours of the day? What good things are you doing that are keeping you from doing the best thing? That's a great question. We can all reduce or let go of something. We give our time to things we see as a priority, whether we know it or not. So good. Mm. So well said. And number two is schedule your priorities. Uh, the second step is schedule your priorities. I can already hear the sighing and the groaning. <laughs> schedule is a bad word, kind of like budget in some of our minds. Yeah. However, it is in fact one of the best tools we have in regaining the precious rest we so desperately wish we had. Don't let the day control you. Instead, you should take control of your day. I suggest giving Jesus some FaceTime first thing in the morning. It's much more rewarding than a few minutes of random friend of a friend of a friend social media page you scroll through instead. <laughs> then start planning your day start to finish. You don't need to be crazy strict. Life happens. But try to stick to what, uh, to what you put down as best as you can. You're making time for what matters most. You'll be amazed at how much time uh, you seem to have afterwards. So schedule your priorities. That gets at what you said earlier, right? Like mm -hmm. five minutes here, 10 minutes here, right. three minutes here. Uh, and then all the time it takes you to get back into what you were doing before. And all of a sudden your day is gone. Sticking to some sort of, uh, some sort of structure, some sort of schedule, like a budget with your money as well is uh, super important. Well, and we, you know, we had Scott Sauls on the show earlier in the week and he's said what I've heard a lot of people say recently, like, limiting how many times you check your email per day. He's like, I just check it. Mm -hmm. You know, my brother for a long time has only been checking it twice a day and has an away message up uh, any other times that he's not. And it sends a message saying, hey, just so you know, uh, I only check email at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Just just be forewarned. I thought, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not letting that control him. Like every time there's a ding, every time there's a flash, like <laughs> I got I to gotta open my email. You know, that's how a lot of us feel. And uh, this last one I think is great because it's kind of a two-parter as, as sleep physically and spiritually. The last step is in two parts. Start getting some real sleep and rest in God. They, uh, these should now both be a little easier to do if you've done the first two steps. Exercise is great, as it's a good diet, but nothing beats a good night's sleep. It gives your body and mind a chance to recover. Then there is resting in God. Uh, when you are emotionally, mentally, physically ready to call it quits, he's there to give you rest. Talk to him 
and read the promises of rest he puts in his word for us. You will finally be able to wake up no longer restless, but restful in body, soul, and spirit. We got a, a couple of minutes left, Brian. Did, did any one of these particularly kind of jump out at you in this season right now? Oh, I'm not a good scheduler. That's the one for me. I tend to go from uh, immediate thing to immediate thing. Mm -hmm. I told you I struggle with checking email too much or kind of getting on Twitter. Uh, Like I had, I tend to have a very general outside of meetings, right? Like, oh, I got this meeting at 10 or we're recording at this time. Uh, But outside of those things, I don't like, uh, I don't tend to schedule my day very well. And that Mm -hmm. can leave me exactly as they're describing here, kind of. Uh, floating from thing to thing and feeling like I don't feel like I'm on top of my day here. So that's that's the biggie for me. Number two, schedule your priorities. How about yourself? Yours has to be sleep. You yeah, three I'm and not, two year old, so. not a great sleeper. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. It's like easy to blame the three and two year old. I wasn't I a good sleeper before this. I've mentioned before how like my final semester of my senior year of college, I pulled more than 30 all nighters, which, you know, is closing <laughs> in on what, two a week or something like that is I was getting an average of five nights of sleep a week. Um, that that wasn't great. And there's, you know, underlying stuff beneath that for taking on too many things, saying yes to too many things or too many people. I, there's other aspects to that. But just the sleep. I mean, even even sometimes now while everyone's already the house is quiet, it's like, OK, I could I could work on one more thing or I could just go to sleep. So often it's like, oh, I'll work on one more thing. I'll get one more thing yeah. checked off. I like I like. Yeah, the the feeling of accomplishment of checking a thing off and, and sometimes that can keep me going and prevent me from sleep. But then, of course, you wake up the next day and you're tired. You're like, I'm not yes. bringing my best self to this day at all. And I think that can only happen so many times before you're like, OK, so something something needs to change. And I think um, that's right. <laughs> I think a lot of us are probably getting to that point right now, which I think is uh, it's probably ultimately a good thing. Well, coming up next, yeah. uh, I want to talk about uh, Mary's Magnificat. I, I know it's not quite yet. Christmas, it's Advent season, um, but there's a, a lot in the season that I think is worth us talking about. And Brian and I are both pastors, so we find some of these things particularly interesting. So we're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And Brian and I are feeling particularly giggly. I don't know what it is. I, I know that uh, we've been called by a number of people the laughing pastors, which I'm okay with. Mm-hmm. I've been called m- much, much worse. Laughing pastors is that is a okay in my book. We should get t-shirts or something. We or, should or masks. What if we make <laughs> laughing, like laughing pastors, pastors. masks and it's just like a big, wide open laughing mouth? Nah, <laughs> that's a terrible idea. I should run these things really by scary. you before we're actually live. Sorry, sorry, my bad. <laughs> get the promotions people on. Let's see what they yeah, think. All right, I'm sure they're gonna love it. And I found this out of the uh, Washington Post. To be quite fascinating. I don't know if you've ever taught on Mary's Magnificat. Is that something that you've ever like put sermon space uh, behind, Brian? Not. Uh, I've preached multiple times on Mary, her, uh, and so it begins part of the story. But no, not specifically on the Magnificat. No. How about yourself? I don't think so. I, I think I may have written something about it, but I'm not. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever given uh, sermon space to it. So here's what the headline reads. I'm so I'm just I'm just reading I'm just reading the news. I didn't write it. Uh, Mary's Magnificat in the Bible is revolutionary. Some evangelicals silence her. What's going on here? Uh, yeah, 
the story begins this way. The article begins this way. When I was 15, I was cajoled into playing Mary in the, in the church's nativity scene. I was embarrassed, stuffing a pillow under a robe to signify pregnancy, but I felt I had no choice. I was the pastor's daughter, and there was no one else who could play the role. My cheeks burning in shame, I remember feeling little connection to Mary, the mother of God. I was silent in the play. Uh, Mary, in our tradition, was a vehicle for Jesus, a holy mm. womb, a good and compliant and obedient girl. Much later in life, I was shocked to discover that Mary wasn't quiet, nor was she what I would call meek and mild. Go read the first chapter of Luke. Read the song called the Magnificat that Mary sings. The first verses were always familiar to me, right? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Same for the next few lines about Mary being overwhelmed at the goodness of God, looking upon a humble girl, that God is mighty and has done great things that he is holy and will bless those who fear him. But then comes this. Mm -hmm. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. In all my long years of being in church, of knowing the Christmas story backward and forward, I never heard these verses emphasized. Mm. Here, Mary comes across less like a scared and obedient 15-year-old and more like a rebel intent on reorienting unjust systems. So we're going to get into more here, but what do you think? Uh, I've never heard it preached that way either. And so uh, what do you think about this author's take on uh, Mary there? Well, that's the thing. The very fact that you and I have probably never actually preached it for one. Two, mm -hmm. I think her experience is probably a lot, you know, similar to a lot of ours where those other verses may have also been read, but certainly weren't emphasized. I can definitely think of instances where the second half just wasn't read at all because yeah, for whatever reason, I don't want to, I don't want to cast judgment on, on motive yeah. necessarily, but like, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's sort of like, Oh, those first ones. Yeah. Those feel familiar. It's Christmas time. Yeah. Those are the kinds of words I'm used to. And then you get to the second half. I could, I could see a pastor in preparation mode thinking, I don't really know how to work this second half into like a Christmas theme. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that is, yeah, exactly. So it's sometimes that's probably part of why I think it's so significant that, uh, that we talk about it. Yeah, so uh, D.L. Mayfield is the author here. It's at the Washington Post, uh, which, again, I find interesting that this isn't at Christianity Today, right? This isn't at uh, Christian headlines, but to be at the Washington Post, uh, she goes on to write, I love this Mary. Where had she been all my life? I was just divorced and was dreading Christmas. Then I remembered the broken families in the Bible. Throughout history, I would learn poor and oppressed people had often identified with this song the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament, and a poor, young, unmarried, pregnant woman at that. Oscar Romero, priest and martyr, drew a comparison between Mary and the poor and powerless people in his own community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis, called the Magnificat, quote, the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Hmm. Revolutionaries, the poor and the oppressed, all loved Mary and they emphasized her glorious song. But the Magnificat has, has been viewed as dangerous by people in power. Some countries, such as India, Guatemala, and Argentina, have outright banned the Magnificat from being recited in liturgy or in public. All right, I'm going to stop again there. I didn't know any of that stuff. Like I'm a pastor with a, you know, a, a Bible degree and a master's degree. I didn't know, uh, you know, what I've really ever really known of Mary is like we preach on her. I've preached on her multiple times, but it's more from the beginning of what we talked about here, right? Uh -huh. Like uh, a young girl, uh, look what God does through the powerless, uh, all this kind of stuff, all true stuff. Uh, or the kind of the other conversation about Mary is, you know, 
how do the Catholics see Mary versus what do we believe? Right. Sure. Like those are the kind of the conversations of Mary. I didn't know that there was this history, particularly around the Magnificat to the point that it had been banned in some countries. This is a, uh, this is a, quite honestly new news to me. I find this really interesting. Yeah. I, I'd heard Bonhoeffer. I'd read some, something somewhere years ago. I honestly, I, Oscar Romero just came on my radar like in the last six months. I read the really? the violence of love, yeah, for school, and yeah, really, really have been affected by his his writing and his perspective. But yeah, a, a lot of this is is brand new to me too, and, and my guess is it's probably brand new to to a lot of people. So my my question, I guess, and there's a lot more to the article, but like, what do you do mm-hmm. with this? Like, is it a? I want this to be more than just, huh? Didn't know that. Like, I don't want this just to simply be trivia for us, you know, going into advent and christmas season what do you what do you make of this yeah i do think at the very least it causes us to ask okay uh things are not in scripture uh randomly right if these are the words that were sung by the mother of jesus uh and this is like at the at the you know in the midst of our uh of our christmas celebration uh if these are the things that she that she sang and she prayed then i i think we need to wrestle with like what do i think about them like does this reflect you know what i believe in my belief system and and uh like you said it becomes easy we've talked about this for many months now it becomes easy to uh to kind of uh jump past the words about marginalization and oppression and the poor and and uh, and go to the much nicer words of scripture that make us feel nicer and feel better. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think it let the very least reading the Magnificat this Christmas for the whole thing that it is and, and do some work on it and go, okay, let me wrestle with this. Let me think about this as instead of doing what this article says we often do and just go to those first couple verses and, and kind of cut it off there. So what, what comes to mind for you? What do you do with this information? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to read the second to last paragraph here because i think it i think it answers pretty pretty beautifully it's mary no longer just a silent member of nativity or a holy womb for god or an obedient and compliant girl has become the focal point for how i and many other christians celebrate christmas while living in the reality of waiting for true justice to come she has helped me understand the true magnificence of how much god cares about our political economic and social realities to me it's something that you and i have actually ended up talking about a lot on the show over the last year or so and it does, I don't know, this, the timing of this article uh, strikes me as not only just like new, interesting information, but as, um, I don't know, a bit of a, a bit of a fanning of the flames, I guess. Like, oh, that's right. There, there are like really profound political economic aspects to the story to, to maybe, maybe the invitation for, for people listening. Let's, let's be careful not to sanitize the Christmas story which maybe that's not the right word yeah. to use in the middle of a pandemic, but like there is a tendency, I think, to, to, to make the story squeaky clean in a way that it never was. And I always want to be asking, what do we miss when we, when we sanitize the, the stories of scripture in a way that, you know, mm-hmm. don't make us nearly as uncomfortable or uneasy. And I think this year, m- maybe more than ever, I think it's, it's worthwhile for us to do the hard, sometimes uncomfortable work, to read what's really there, what's what's actually going on. And I think uh, that's something that I, I feel really inspired to do this year. So hopefully you found that challenging or encouraging or hopeful. And like always, the entire article is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, founder of Chain Reaction Games, but he's only 17 years old. Braden Gogus is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm and we're thrilled to have on the show for the very first time, Braden Gogus. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hey, thanks for uh, taking the time. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is Braden and I am in charge, I guess, of Chain Reaction Games, the company that I made to um, basically make games for the App Store, games and other apps. Nice. Yeah. Brain, we, we read here that, that you kind of started Chain Reaction Games when you were 11, which is just fascinating to me. Uh, could you tell us the story a little bit as, as an 11-year-old, how it turned out that you started this company, Chain Reaction Games? Yeah, okay. So I had been interested in games for a really long time. Like I, Ever since I was little, I liked to play games, whether it was video games or board games. I always wanted to play games. And I always wanted to like make games like I'd come up with my own rules and stuff. <laughs> um, so that was kind of like the inspiration at basically as far back as I can remember into my childhood, just like always working on stuff, making up ideas. Mm. Um, and so when I was 11, that was when I was learn. I decided that I was going to learn how to make games for um iPod touch, iPad, the whole like Apple family of touch devices, because that was where I like to play games. And so I was like, oh, why don't I just figure out how to make games for that? And so that was kind of a funny thing because I was like, oh, I like playing games on here. And I was like, I had made board games before by drawing things on pieces of paper and cutting them out and being like, these are the game pieces we're going to play now. Wow. So I was like, why not just do the same thing for um, for a phone game? And so that was where I had a Kickstarter to be able to raise money to like get the licensing and stuff mm. to actually publish the game. That was when I was 11. Wow. That's wild. So it's, <laughs> it's sort of just in your blood then is what it sounds like. There's an added component here though. That is fascinating. You've teamed up with a 21. I'd love for you to talk about that partnership a little bit. Yeah. So that was really cool because, um, so a 21, if you don't know, like their whole thing is that they're trying to like, abolish modern slavery so like get rid of the practice of human trafficking all the way across the globe and so it was it's a really cool cause and i was glad i got connected to be able to be a part of this so one of my more recent games uh, it's called solid square not solitaire solid square because (laughs) um it's a card game that takes place in a square that's where the name comes from um but it's a variant that i made up that um basically part of the draw of the game is collecting these different decks. And so it kind of fit with their cause that like we have two decks in that game that you can purchase that all the money goes to a 21 and helping their cause. And then you get to play with those uh, decks with unique artwork that goes along with a 21 and their, um, their whole cause. Awesome. And why did you choose A21? What was it about them that that made you want to link up with them? Well, it I just it was kind of a thing that I didn't know as much about until I did. Like mm-hmm. basically I it wasn't a huge thing that was on my radar like the idea of human trafficking, but someone who actually from the Kickstarter when I was 11, one of the backers was um like he worked with them and kind of like asked me if I'd be interested in learning more about them and like getting connected with them. So then I looked into their cause and I 
read a lot and it was very like eye-opening to see like what a big issue it is and how I I really wanted to um, be a part of it in any way I could. And so that was where I got to talk to them and I got to um, figure out, basically we worked with them to figure out how some sort of promotion within my apps for them could look. I love that. And because your story, at least in this sense, begins at 11, I, I would love for you to take a second and talk to the person who, whether they're 11 or they're in their 90s, they've had a dream that they've just like not actually taken that leap of faith. They've not taken a step in that direction. They've not taken the plunge, whatever metaphor you want to use. What, what would you say to the person who who has like an itch in that regard? Or they have a, a dream or an idea that they haven't actually put energy toward. What, what would you say to that person? Well, I like what I would say, the reason why I was able to do this is because I never thought that I couldn't really like the Mm. way that this like kind of came about. I never, if I had thought before I tried it, like, Oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. I wouldn't have tried Mm. it. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And so if they're like, if there is someone who really wants to do something, but they're like, Oh, I'll do that when I'm older or I can't do that right now. It's like, there's always something that you can do right now you may not be the best at it right now i definitely wasn't for a while not that i am now that sounded funny Um, (laughs) but uh, i'm definitely a lot better than i was when i started and so it's just one of those things where it's like even if you think it's something you can't work on right now there are so many resources so many skills you can work on like at any point in time that can help you get towards your goal and so basically it just comes down to starting yeah Hmm. Uh, do you think Braden, uh, I know people your age always hate the question. What are you going to do when you're older? Is this what you're going to do? Are you going to always do this? Or do you think you'll move into something else? Just kind of become curious. Where do you think your future will be with this? Um, well, I definitely think that I will continue to make games because I love to make games, but it will probably be in like a similar capacity. I do right now. Making games is not the only thing I do. I go to school every day. I have swim practice every day. So it's like, something fun I can do on the side, like Hmm. as a hobby. And so it's like, I would imagine that as I continue through life, that won't be the only thing I do is make games, but I will probably always be making games. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, part of the reason I like that answer is that, you know, Brian and I are both pastors first and we're doing this radio thing just because it's like a, it's a passion area. I really, I I appreciate about your posture toward this. Like, Hey, this might not be my career. And I, I think this, Last year in particular has probably birthed a lot of that in people. Like they found themselves with more free time than they previously had. And they maybe are engaging with skills that they've never really tried. Are there other things on the horizon for you that you're kind of interested in dipping a toe into? I don't know. I really just like learning about a lot of different things, like how to do things. I like math and science a lot, but I also like other, like basically all types of skills. I just like to, get a wide variety of knowledge. And so I imagine whatever I will end up doing will be something that I can learn a lot about. Like that's one of the things I like about coding is that the area changes so frequently and there's always so much more I can learn. It's never like I know everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Braden, we're excited to have you with us. Um, Excuse me. Why don't you tell us where people can find out more about you, Twitter, Instagram, website, where can people go if they're interested to see what you're doing? Yeah. Okay. So for social media on Twitter and Instagram and probably Facebook too, I think um, it's at chain react games. So like chain reaction, but without the I O N 
Um, I can spell the whole thing, but it would probably take too long. Um, and on the app store, you could, if you search for chain reaction games on the app store, you should be able to see it. Um, Solis square is S O L I S Q U A R E. And that is the game that is being, uh, promoted with a 21. My other most recent game is circulus. If you want to check that one out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Our guest today has been Braden Gogus. He's the founder of Chain Reaction Games and done more with his life than I probably will in three lifetimes. Uh, <laughs> Braden, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was fun. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about marriage, brain science, minimalism, and Advent. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Uh, Brian, I was looking at this article, and I realized it's probably been a minute since we've actually talked about marriage on this show. And it's one of the things that when we, you know, when we really began the show— one of our goals was to talk about the kinds of things that, you know, at least we think a lot of people are facing or struggling or conversations they're having. You know, we're both pastors, but we're also husbands and fathers and neighbors and citizens and all that stuff. So I actually found this pretty interesting and it's a it's a perfect kind of headline to, you know, entice you. It says researchers found one way that long term marriages get happier. So I imagine, you know, people who are married or want to be married one day. You're reading that thing, you're like, what's the one thing? I got it. I got another one thing. So props to you guys for the uh, the killer headline. Why don't yes. you uh, walk us into it a little bit? Yeah, and these marriage uh, articles they they do make me laugh about how fast life goes. You know, like you always think about yourself as kind of still the newlywed, and now when I read these articles, I'm like, wait, I've been married twenty years. Yeah, that is not <laughs> like in my mind, it's like, oh yeah, you know, when I get older, how how will my wife and I stay? And like, nope, nope, we are in the long term marriage section here. So. <laughs> Uh, the article begins, I, it turns out that a long, happy marriage resembles a slow-moving rom-com, one that plays out over decades. The first few years of marriage are rife with conflicts, but the emotional weather eventually changes, according to a 2018 study by psychology researchers at UC Berkeley. In time, humor, friendly teasing, jokes, and silliness become more prevalent, and bickering and criticisms decline. These findings, which must be among the sweetest to enter the crowded field of relationship <laughs> research, were reached after psychologists analyzed videotaped interactions of 87 couples who had been married 15 to 35 years and followed them over 13 years. The study's conclusions contradict an existing theory that positive emotions fade over time in a long relationship, mm -hmm. uh, point out the, the authors here. However, they align nicely with other recent longitudinal studies that show a u-shaped pattern of happiness in lengthy marriages mm -hmm. the questions of how unions change and what triggers different twists and turns are not settled they write importantly though jokes and gentle humor were not the only heroic behaviors that showed up in greater abundance uh, in the marriages they followed all the positive waves we can behave towards someone become more evident as the years passed but primarily humor enthusiasm and validation Criticisms dropped off, as did the truly toxic divorce courting habits like stonewalling. Men demonstrated less anger and women less contempt. So we'll stop there. There's more to get into. But uh, that's interesting, I think, right? A lot of times what you read in or hear from speakers or whatever is 
uh, first couple years, honeymoon period, all it is is just, uh, you know, lots of laughter and fun. Uh, but then, you know, marriage, the, like the, the, the bloom is kind of off the rose, right? And it gets hard and, uh, you know, uh, it takes a lot of work. And some of that's true. Uh, but interestingly, the findings here seem to suggest that we get more comfortable in marriage. Uh, kind of that criticism goes away a little bit and uh, and it kind of turns into a more of a joyful place almost. It's kind of why I wanted to do a story like this, because it does feel like I, they're, they're all over the place. The article's about 50% of all marriages ending in divorce, which certainly has been disputed. And it feels like even maybe even especially since the pandemic, there's there's a lot of uh, really frightening negative things coming out. And and we need to talk about those too, right? There's, there's some, yeah. some very real dire, dire circumstances for a lot of people that need to be talked about and probably even more than that. But, you know, this idea of this kind of U-shaped trajectory, I remember uh, there was a pastor at my last church and, you know, they're in their 80s now and they got married real young. And I remember asking him about that because I, you know, I was, I was dating this girl at the time and, and I thought, man, here's a guy who's got, you know, six plus decades of marriage under his belt. Like I would just, I would love to glean some of his wisdom. And I remember the first time I asked him about it, he, he kind of like looked off to the right a little bit and goes, the first seven years or so were really, really tough. I was like, what? <laughs> like I'd never heard, you know, usually that's not how that goes. Usually people are like, yeah, the first couple of years were tough. So we kind of bailed, we jumped ship, we cut our losses. Yep, we yep. decided we weren't compatible. weren't a good fit. And I was like, what in your mind like, how in the world did you power through seven years? And he, you know, over the course of years, and I got to know him and love them very much, you get to hear some of their story and the ups and downs. And they have just this beautiful relationship and all the things this article is mentioning. And there's, you know, joking and teasing and they rib each other and they love each Like, it's it's just wild. And, you know, in their 80s, and it's beautiful to watch. But to know that at the very beginning of their story was a a length of difficulty that most people, not most, a lot of people wouldn't bother powering through. They would have, yes. they just like, they take it as reading the tea leaves and like, all right, well, we, let's, uh, let's go our separate ways. And I, I appreciated that a lot because he didn't sugarcoat the fact that it actually was really difficult. And now it's kind of like reaping, like, like this article is saying some of the real kind of sweet seasons of it all. And I, I just mm -hmm. always think of them when I think of stuff like this. Yeah, I, I know, uh, I've shared this before, but, uh, my wife and I, when we got married, uh, I, we had a like our biggest fight ever within the first week we were home from our honeymoon right. over uh over how long would we go with before somebody had to wash the dishes like it was something so stupid like that but now you're living with somebody right uh -huh. like now you're doing life together and it is true i do think we do a disservice because uh their first years of marriage are unbelievably awesome right like tons of tons of fun tons of new experiences but but it's also really hard because you're melding two lives together uh, and, and, and like you said, I do think, I don't know that, I don't know what the studies say, but I would guess that that's a lot of times where people bail in those first couple years go, well, we're just not compatible. Right. Uh, I'm not sure you're actually compatible with anybody, hmm. uh, perfectly. Right. And so it does take this figuring it out. Like right now I do know I, I'm 20 years into marriage, man. And my wife and I still fight. We still what? Uh, have our disagreements for sure. Uh, we could do a whole show on those, but I do think is that a good idea? there is <laughs> Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good one. We'll take calls on that one. There, there, there is a comfortability to our relationship, right? Where we just get each other. Like I know uh, much more of of uh, you know what might uh, annoy her or or what 
uh, would make her feel loved or these types of things that I didn't know when we were in year two. Right. Uh, right. And and so this article also goes on to talk about that there is something to be said about the early years being being marked by passionate love and the later years or as you move on to more of a uh, com- companionate, they call it, kind of a companion love with uh, lots of humor and lots of joking and and this kind of deep love. Uh, which I find interesting as well. But I do think some fa- some couples out there who who are early in marriage and it's like, man, this is harder than I thought. Like there is some hope in articles like this to be like, no, go to counseling, get the work done, but but hold on, like keep yeah. going. Yeah. This, this is how it ends. It says perhaps the main takeaway is that everyone is taking themselves a bit too seriously. It's worth remembering, uh, remembering that the next time you find yourself in a spat with your significant other and trying to look for the humor in the situation, perhaps your weekly argument is just an inside joke waiting to happen. I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever, That's actually. Good. Maybe a helpful. OK, so, Brian, everyone knows at this point, like I'm much newer to this whole married thing. You're the veteran with, you know, with two two decades now. Any any final words of, of wisdom to people out there? I think this article gets at it. I think learn to laugh at yourselves. Right. And. Uh, you, you don't have to win every fight either, every argument. You, right. you, you don't need to. There's not this big scoreboard up there that's right. like, oh, I beat her in that one. Uh, you, you know, sometimes uh, so laugh a lot uh, and and try to find new things to do together. Right. Don't allow your relationship to come stale, especially once you have children. Your life can just become about your children. And that can be very difficult. You got to protect against that. But, man, I'm I'm very pro marriage. I'm 20 years in and. uh and uh, yeah, very, very glad to be married. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well said. I'm glad I'm glad you got that in there, as am I. As always, that article is up on our Facebook page, and uh, we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, I got two articles. I want to talk a little bit about habits and brain science. We'll see if we actually have time to get all that in. But one headline reads, Pandemic Proof Your Habits. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. I'm still not going to tell you the holidays yet. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep teasing it out because I have two articles. I don't think we'll have time to get to both of them, but they both present, I think, really interesting ideas, especially around habits and brain science, which if you know me, those are two things that I'm like endlessly fascinated about. Just to be clear, like sometimes Brian will call me the brain science guy. That doesn't seem you are. It doesn't seem fair to like actual brain science people. Like <laughs> if you were to if you were to quiz me on just one on one level brain science stuff, I would just stare at you blankly. So yeah, it's a weird thing to be this interested in something I know so little about. But cards on the table. That's just kind of where I'm at. So I got two articles. One's called Pandemic Proof Your Habits. The second one, the headline reads, your brain is not for thinking. I'm going to I'm going to dealer's choice again, Brian. What which one would you like to go after first? Well, let's tackle the first one. Pandemic proof your habits. I find this one pretty interesting. The author writes these are both from The New York Times, by the way. Uh, The author here writes, uh, I attended a Thanksgiving dinner several years ago where the hostess, without warning family and friends, broke with tradition and served salmon instead of turkey. Oh, that's no good. <laughs> Roasted potatoes instead of mashed. Raspberry, uh, how do you pronounce C-O-U-L-I-S? Coolies. I think uh, so. Instead, instead of cranberry sauce, and you get the idea. <laughs> While a few guests mustered the politeness to say the meal was, quote, something else, most reacted with undisguised disgust. Uh, some seethed, others sulked. One young guest actually cried. No one had seconds. It wasn't that the meal itself was bad. In fact, the meal was outstanding. The problem was that it wasn't the meal everyone was expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, pause there for a sec. 
I, that would have driven me up a wall. What would you have thought if you went to a Thanksgiving, actual Thanksgiving meal and they didn't bring out turkey? Does not bother me at all. This is these uh, some of the most consistent differences between my wife and I. Like I am, I am more than happy. Like, really? yeah, let's try something new. All right. Like that is that posture of let's try something new applies to a lot of areas of life. Whenever we travel, if we're in a completely new city or country. Uh, we could be getting breakfast anywhere in the world, and I know exactly what she's going to order for breakfast every, every time. <laughs> and she makes a good point, though. She's like, if they screw this up, then I can't. they can't be trusted with anything else. But I'm always like, we got one night in Madrid. I'm going to try whatever the local favorite, blah, 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 <laughs> which does sometimes come back to bite you. Sometimes you take a risk and you're like, wow, I really wish I would have gotten the yeah. two eggs scrambled and bacon. <laughs> yep. That's I much more like your wife than you there because oh my gosh especially for Thanksgiving if they're like hey here's Sam and I'd be like nope <laughs> I'd be fine I'm fine with it now that's the thing I do like traditions though so it's not all yeah, traditions sure. but yeah I I would be okay with it the article goes on to say when there are discrepancies between expectations and reality all kinds of distress signals go off in your brain it doesn't matter if it's a holiday ritual or more mundane habit like how you tie your shoes. If you can't do it the way you normally do it, you're biologically engineered to get upset. Hmm. This in part explains people's grief and longings for for the routines that were the background melodies to our lives before the pandemic hmm. and also their sense of unease as we enter a holiday season unlike any other. The good news is that much of what we miss about our routines and customs and what makes them beneficial to us as a species has more to do with their comforting regularity than their actual than the actual behaviors. The key to coping during this or any time of upheaval is to quickly establish new routines so that even if the world is uncertain, there are still things you can count on. That's really interesting because I think we and we've talked about this before, but uh, we've certainly feel that in the midst of the pandemic, this kind of unsettled that we've lost things and and it brings kind of this angst and unease. Uh, and the author here is saying, yeah, that that's actually your brain going, uh -huh. hey, the things I'm used to, the routines that are kind of wired are, are all messed up right now. And so I think and what I find interesting here is this brain science is saying you should feel this way right yeah, now. Yeah, let me just read these these next two paragraphs, because this is this is where I start to salivate. Um First, a little background on why we are such creatures of habit. Psychologists, anthropologists, neuroscientists, and neurobiologists have written countless books and research papers on the topic, but it all boils down to this. Are you ready, Brian? Human I'm beings ready. are prediction machines. So they quote uh, Carl Friesten, a professor of neuroscience at University College in London. Our brains are statistical organs that are built simply to predict what will happen next. In other words, we have evolved to minimize surprise. Does that resonate? Does that sound like? how you're wired 100 percent. yes really yeah okay absolutely i think this totally makes sense yeah yeah so for me it's i'm torn because i there's certainly things and patterns and stuff that i like a certain way but i also i guess if i had to answer i really like pulling surprises on other people that i probably enjoy that mm. more than actually being surprised myself but i don't know it depends it depends on the circumstance either way it, it talks about Routines and rituals and habits being a really primitive part of our brains. Um, quoting again the author, keep doing what you've been doing because you did it before and you didn't die. Like kind of arguing that, that, that that's, that's sort of the origins yeah. of, of that kind of thinking. Yeah, and I think about this as a pastor, how often mm, yeah. uh, you get into these rhythms. And rhythms are good because I, people do need stability, right? They do need markers. Okay, we, we, we don't have many traditions, but we do this at Christmas or we do this. But a lot of times when I've thought through 
you know, should we do this program? The answer sometimes just boils down to, I don't know, we've always done it. Or Mm. (laughs) why do we do Sunday morning this way? I don't know. We've always done it. And so we do get into routines, even in these smaller areas uh, that that sometimes they provide comfort for us, but sometimes can just be a crutch. Well, it goes on to say routines and rituals also conserve precious brain power. It turns out our brains are incredibly greedy when it comes to energy consumption, sucking up to 20 percent of calories while accounting for only two percent of overall body weight. When our routines are disrupted, we have to make new predictions about the world, gather information, consider options and make choices. And that has a significant metabolic cost. I I can be honest. I don't know that I've ever thought about the metabolic cost of surprises no. ever. But I think this article is making a great point, that is, especially in a year yeah. where everything's a surprise. And it just feels like I think the analogy for me feels like waves. It's like w- continued waves of surprises. You know, we've talked about at the very beginning of all this. We at least for a while were like, OK, but when we're back for Easter or OK, when things yeah. are back to normal over the summer. And it's, so it feels like these newly crashing waves of like, Oh, but what about Thanksgiving? Oh no. What about, what about Christmas? I'd heard somebody yesterday. Like, what do we do for new year's? I'm like, not much, probably like that's you're having to redeal and your brain's having to readapt. Like, okay, here's a new avalanche of surprises. I didn't account for. Yeah. And then on top of it, not having the answers to those surprises, right? My kid says, uh, Hey, do you think we'll be able to go to a baseball game next year? I'm like, I, I hope so. Mm. I don't know. And so not only having the routines and stuff that we knew the answers to before, but now it's new things coming at us and we don't have the answers to them or when they're going to end and when things will be quote unquote normal or will they ever be normal yet? All that it begins to make sense why so many of us feel just kind of stressed and uneasy, even if there's not very particular things right now in our lives that are stressful, just kind of the general tone of the pandemic right now. Uh, leaving us uneasy and kind of on on a uh, unsolid footing. I think it starts to make sense as you read articles like this. Yeah, and in full Ian fashion, we got approximately one fifth of the way through one of the articles, and I <laughs> set out to tackle two. I don't, I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. Let's let's save that other one for sometime next week. It's a good. It's one. called "Your Brain Is Not for Thinking," and I think I think you'll be really surprised by it. So that's that's a whole weekend long tease. Sometime. Next Ugh, week, we yes. we may or may tackle that. Um, may or may. We may or may not is what I should be saying. I'm trying to do too many things at once. Okay, so coming up next, out of Becoming Minimalist, they uh, they write some fascinating things. Here's the headline. Do you want to enjoy more of your holiday season? Remove these 10 things. So it's minimalism, which I'm a big fan of, and it's lists, which Brian's a big fan of. So we're going to merge those powers together. Coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Real quick, Brian. Nope. Stay in focus. You want to you want to hear the holidays? I absolutely do. Okay. First off, it's faux fur Friday. <laughs> faux like f f a u x like fake fake fur. Faux fur. Okay. Faux fur Friday. That's true. That's funny. I, said, I said it too first. Too first. Too <laughs> fast. You, know that, you thought someone's name was just faux fur. It's exactly how I heard it. I'm like, Fofer Friday. I do. He's going to explain it, but I don't know what it well, is right now. Matt, Fo- Matt Fofer is actually Fo- the owner of MySpace right now. That's why. <laughs> that's where that came from. It's his day. It's uh, National Sock Day. Okay. I'm wearing some. So, yes. I am not. National Dice Day. Okay. Good Christians don't use those, but good. Okay. Good Christians don't. <laughs> they literally cast lots in the Book of Acts. That's we don't we don't we don't really talk about that yeah okay fair enough. <laughs> no it's farmer's day in ghana 
And then last but not least, I think you might be happy about this one, Brian. It's National Cookie Day, so go and get yourself a cookie. Yeah, although do I do uh, you do remember I told you that my favorite kinds of cookie are right on the edge of being. We bombed. don't need to go my there. favorite chocolate chip. Cookies, I was having a good day. Yeah. Otherwise, we didn't need to. We don't need to. Hold on, you and I have to. I'm going about to make you mad. By the way, why we would, have to argue about? Why something. would you do this to me? Uh, you posted oh, no. uh, earlier today uh, that about eggnog. Yes, yes, yes There's yes, two yes, types yes, of people in the world. You either love eggnog. How did you word it? What was it? Either love I eggnog. Said, or... I said there are two kinds of people in this world: people who love eggnog and people who are wrong. <laughs> and uh, I do not like eggnog. Unfriend. <laughs> How? Oh, Brian! Gosh, I do not. I do not. I've tried. I've tried with the eggnog. Have you had? Hey, I'm, I don't I'm, even know I'm, where to I, I don't, I'm with Brian on this. I don't like eggnog either. Hey, hi, John. Uh, You're with me. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I, I think it's yes. mainly the name eggnog. That's like ninety percent of why I don't like oh. it. It's such an un. <laughs> you gotta get get over. It's such the an name. unappealing Every, name. It's made, I mean, it's like. Made. They, that that's what they came up with, really. I don't know, guys. You're really bumming me out right now. I'm really, I'm not... That's an interesting way. That's an interesting way to uh, to decide which foods and drinks you like <laughs> by whether the name is good. based on the onomatopoeia <laughs> nature of them. Is it, does it sound good to me? This is. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, uh, okay. Like 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 a good father. That's what I'm going to say to you. Um, we should move on. We'll revisit that later. Yes. We'll come back to this. We're not done here yet, Brian. Uh, from becoming minimalist. <laughs> Want to enjoy more of your holiday season? Remove these 10 things. So if you got a pen and paper, uh, I do think these 10 are actually really intriguing. Again, like most articles, Brian and I don't agree with all or sometimes mm-hmm. any of what we're reading, but I think these are interesting. So you want to get us into this list? Yeah, because it talks about in the intro just the fact that we feel so busy and rushed around the holidays. Yeah. Uh, and so if you it says if you want to enjoy more of your holiday season this year, identify what to remove. So this list of 10 is going to talk about maybe some things we can remove from our lives uh, that will allow us kind of the space to enjoy more our Christmas season. And as a lot of us are putting up our trees and buying gifts right now, this is pretty timely. So number one, uh, excessive gift giving. Uh, Giving gifts is just fine, but excessive gift giving benefits no one. It adds debt, obligation, and financial burden to the life of the gift giver and clutter to the home of the gift receiver. Over half of us will receive an unwanted gift this holiday season. Make sure you're not the one giving it. That's uh, that's, uh, coming out of the gate strong right there. That's good. I was going to get you eggnog, so I guess I don't have to anymore. So you do not. Number two, overspending. Half of shoppers will overspend their holiday budget to enjoy your season. Stay within the financial limitations you have set yourself. Here are some helpful ideas to accomplish that. There's a link to another article. You can't spend your way into a merrier season anyway. Do you guys, you have a pretty tight, like holiday gift spending budget, Brian? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it tight. It's a, <laughs> or a budget a little f- or having to have a budget. It's a regular discussion, but we do. Yes, we okay. do. Uh, kids make it hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you, you want to overbuy for your kids. So, uh, number three traditions that don't serve oh, you. Boy. Holidays are holidays and traditions are traditions, but traditions are not the holidays. Uh, maybe Rachel Jonat said it best. We don't have to continue holiday traditions that leave us broke, overwhelmed, and tired. If a specific holiday tradition is not adding value to your season, end oh, it. boy. Number four, all the uh, introverts may celebrate here, unnecessary commitments. 
The holiday season, hi Pippa, is known for its heightened <laughs> sense of obligation. Work parties, neighborhood parties, club parties, holiday festivals, festivities, not festivals, <laughs> or festivals. Festivus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the list goes on and on. Quick reminder, you are in charge of your holiday calendar and you do not need to appear everywhere you are invited. Lighten your schedule. If a commitment is unnecessary and not helping you make the most of your holiday season, go ahead and cancel it. Nice. Number five. By the way, I was glad that Todd Chapman yesterday at Food for the Poor had a dog issue as well. on air. You, you, you felt better. really, uh, really seen, really known. I can promise you my dogs are not going to stop right now. They're there. They're on a tear this right now. Exciting. Number five, shopping, quote, sales. Oh Retail stores are full of tricks that get you separated from your money. Sales racks are one of their methods. Most often shopping the sales, whether in-store, online, or printed on mailers, results in buying things that we never intended to purchase. Keep in mind, if you didn't know you needed it until you saw it on sale, <laughs> you don't need it. Rather than shopping the sales rack, keep to your list instead. That's a good one, man. I'm just should I just read? I'm gonna read the uh the next five real quick and then I'll let you pick one. Uh number six, overeating. Number seven, trying to create the perfect holiday. That's my kryptonite. Number eight, uh holding long held grudges. That's a good one. Number nine, envy. And number ten, your home's clutter. I mean it's Becoming minimalist, so they had to have one about clutter, I'm sure. Does does uh, one of those five kind of jump out at you? I'm going to choose two. So the first one is overeating. Could, did you read this here? It says emergency room visits increased 25 to 50% after the holidays because of overeating, overdrinking, Isn't that wild? and people not following their diets. Uh, I, I, at the end of the Christmas season, man, there's been more cookies laying around right. and more of this. And I always feel like, oh, my gosh, I just need to, like, go out for a walk. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. And then it's interesting in our house, this uh, homes clutter. This was just a conversation my wife and I were having yesterday because we were uh, it's time we were putting up the tree this weekend. And to find to make the room for the tree, we don't have a huge house. So to make room for the tree requires moving of some furniture uh, which kind of is like, well, where can we move the furniture? And you start to realize how much stuff is just around. Uh -huh. So I wanted to mention that one, too, because that is a topic in the Fromm house ongoing. Interestingly, it's my wife uh, who will get into a mode. She's not always like this, but when when faced with it, she'll be like, I'm ready to just throw everything. Out. She'll be the one starting to go through stuff. And I'm like, whoa, that's my favorite jacket there. But uh, <laughs> you have more yeah, clutter. You. Because then you also know that as clutter comes, then you also know that you're about to get Christmas gifts and it's going to add to it. So that's certainly a big one for us. Yeah, I think the the trying to create the perfect holiday for me, it has less to do with like me wanting it and more the people that I love wanting them to have a great experience. And it's weird. I can get like a picture in my head of like how I imagine the day go, you know, not, not just a picture. I, I've typically, you know, planned and structured and organized and like, you know, laid out something. And if there's like a, a wrench in those plans. It's funny because we were talking about mm -hmm. surprise a little earlier in the show. If it's something that I've like worked hard for them, that something kind of throws that for a loop, I, I can I can feel real anxious about that, which ironically will often like ruin the, the day or the moment more than the initial yeah. thing that threw me for a loop. So uh, I'm getting better at just kind of rolling with the punches. This year has certainly taught, I think, probably a lot of us to do just that. But either way, it's a list of 10. I think you know, some of the stuff that they put on that website is, is really helpful, really practical. And who doesn't love a good list? So that's about our Facebook page, the common good radio show. And we would love to know what you think coming up next. And to wrap up the show was going to do good news, but I've been kind of banging this drum all week that like, I think it's important that we talk about Advent and, you know, keeping Advent and Christmas in the rightful places. So this is from gospel coalition. Oh, how we need Advent this year more than most. 
Coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and my eggnog-hating co-host, his name is Brian Fromm, and uh, this is The mm-hmm. Common Good. <laughs> Look at, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting sassy about that eggnog <laughs> hatred. Have, have you had one <laughs> that you thought was close to you liking it? You're like, okay, this is the least awful one that I've had. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to commit. I'm going to commit to at some point in this uh, in this holiday season, I will I will again try eggnog and I'll come back and report for you. I do not look forward to that, but thanks for uh, thanks for doing that. I, <laughs> I did see an article just doom scrolling the other day and uh, the headline was something like, like it or not, tequila is the liquor for eggnog. And I was like, all right, well, that sounds disgusting. That sounds awful. <laughs> no, really but you already don't like eggnog. So you're like, yeah, sure. Might as, might as well add tequila i guess but tequila that'll make it better. anyway <laughs> I, I know that i probably sound like a broken record and probably will for uh, the next couple of weeks but you know in all this talk about christmas and christmas season uh the last few years in particular i've been really interested in why we we just tend to skip over advent and in the same way that a lot of ways i think we should skip over thanksgiving in a, with a similar type of passion like oh man i don't i don't know that i remember us ever really i mean in my family we talked about advent a lot but i never really can recall Advent sermons, and that's maybe just because I have a bad memory. But either way, out of the Gospel Coalition, oh, how we need Advent this year more than most. This is by E.M. Welcher. You want to get us into it? Yep. She writes, uh, I remember her, tan hair, uh, hair freshly cut and dyed, wearing yellow sunglasses, catching a fly ball at a Royals game with her bare hands. She gave the ball to some kid, much to the dismay of the grown man sitting beside us. It was our first anniversary. Danielle, a St. Louis native, would have much preferred a Cardinals game, but we live closer to Kansas City. Uh, by that Christmas, she was kissing me by the Christmas tree, head bald from chemo. Her suffering and death only hurt when I think about it. Pictures of her still burn. Pictures of her still burn my eyes with tears, and shorten the breath of my lungs. Six years after her home going, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the burden of all this death? While Christ's second advent is where I've learned to lay the tonnage of the burden of sacred love stolen by death, Christ's first advent reminds me that God also understands incarnated love stolen Mm. by death. I catch myself daydreaming uh, about Resurrection Day, Christ's second advent. An impressionistic painting comes into focus like morning mist burned off by the breaking of dawn. All the dead in Christ are rising. The great, the small, the noble, the mean, the extraordinary, and the average. People I know are rising. Beloved people I've yearned for all these weary years. Injustice is trod over by the crucified carpenter king. Tears are being wiped away forever. All is being put to right and is finally as God intended it long ago when he saw what his hands had crafted and appraised it as good. But when I snap back to the painful present, I need something to hang on to for dear life. That's what Advent is. Advent is the rusty nail holding us together until Resurrection Day. Advent is the hard-won faith Christ gave us the hour he first cultivated us into good soil. The hour we first believed that the light of the world still shines amid all this desperate darkness. When we celebrate Advent, we're daring to taste and see that God is good in the midst of present desolation i'll pause there there's much this is really well written but uh that's really uh at the crux of it isn't it Ian? for so many people uh we we know the future goodness that that is promised to us we've we've read the book of revelation we we know what's coming but but what's going to what's going to give us hope 
and allow us to keep going in the midst of something like he's describing, right? Somebody that you love so dearly passing away or, or just more of the mundane daily struggles of the day. Uh, and he's saying Advent is, is one of those things that, that, that helps us right now in the present. And I wasn't really thinking about this, but you know, we're, we're starting the series at community on Sunday. I actually got to teach for this Sunday on a, a series called hope for everyone. And I'm speaking specifically to hope and disappointments and, you know, mm. like what a, what a year of disappointments for so many people, right? That line, their That's advent right. is the right. rusty nail holding us together until resurrection day. I got the first time I read that. I was like, Oh, yeah, that's probably a lot of why this year I feel so strongly about it because I, I get the temptation to like run right to Christmas in our minds or run right to Easter mm-hmm. in our mind, right to celebration, arrival, fulfilled dreams. But I think, man, so many of us are the re, our reality is much more in this this weight. You think of you know Malachi prophesied a coming Messiah, and then four hundred years of silence, of questions, of right. dashed hopes, of wondering, is this ever going to actually happen? You know and I saw someone earlier this week write something like, there are no easy answers for why God sometimes makes us wait, but we know it can't be because he doesn't love us. And it was just like a, a good reminder that God does some of his best work in the dark, you know, and, and Advent shows us that sometimes when the night is darkest, God is nearest, you know, and I think it's been a dark year and yeah. for us to kind of skip over what Advent has for us, to me, it feels like, man, that could potentially even just rob us of some of the significance of what of what Christmas really is. Absolutely. So I'm going to keep reading. It says, The prophets of old looked far into the future and saw the Son of God's incarnation. God is with us, is a supernova in the darkness. Darkness that had long been closing its claws around humanity's throat. But Jesus, praise his name. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, dead, and buried, took up again the very life he laid down and rose from his cold grave, defeating death after extinguishing his own holy life. And then he left. Hmm. That may not be how pastors would put it, but it's how many of our church members presently feel. And then he left. They sigh, sensing that God has abandoned them in all this miserable darkness. We pastors will say, of course, that the crucified carpenter king has not abandoned his people. Theologically, this is true. But the vocation of all those in the fellowship of his suffering is to lead cruciform lives in thought and deed, and this entails walking, limping, and crawling on Christ's dusty, narrow road, enduring by faith to the end. It's not enough to merely meet people with theologically sound intellectual exercises. No, you must meet people in the battlefield of their emotions. Jesus wept. This is love. And this is why Advent matters and matters more this year than most. And will you hand your world-weary and bedraggled siblings in Christ, uh, if not the hope, of Advent. Advent helps the saints to persevere until he who began a good work brings it to fruition. It reminds us that the prophets of old look longing into the future. Their hope is the same that we mm. have. For in the here and now, we are sojourners in the valley of the shadow of death, plodding between the two advents of our God and King. Perhaps you have prayed in the quiet hours of the night, O oh Lord, how much sadness can be poured into one fragile human vessel composed of little more than dust before she irreparably shatters. Warm waves of rev- of resurrection will at long last thaw out and restore your tattered heart. So take heart, beloved. Resurrection day approaches. Until then, though, we need Advent. Uh, that's uh, E.M. Welker. Really well written. I almost don't want to say anything after that. That's that's really good at the Gospel Coalition. No, I'm realizing I uh, said the last name incorrectly. It definitely is Welker, that's for sure. I think so. Yeah. W-E-L-C-H-E-R. That's, so that's how we're going to end this like really 
like deep, profound, emotional segment. I'm like, I think I said his last name wrong. I think that's, uh, <laughs> and that is why we need Advent because Ian, Ian can't read all, all jokes aside though. Like sometimes you just come across prose where you're like, mm, that, and I, I don't even have any like specific reason for it. It's not like it's beautiful. Yeah. We haven't experienced any, any massive loss personally or, or face some like huge tidal wave of difficult, you know, there's, there's just something to it though that I think, yes, this is why Advent matters. This is why, especially, you know, you and I as, as pastors and people who have by God's grace been given platforms, this is why I think it's important to, to really take a deeper dive in what, what was uh, the early church really getting at, you know, why, why do, why did things like Advent emerge and what is the significance and what do we, what do we miss out on by, uh, by not engaging. I don't know if you have a, a final word or not, Brian, this, this Advent season. Oh, I think this idea that uh, it's not just some future hope that we have, yes. but, but in the present uh, and that Advent reminds us of that, I think is so important, especially in the midst of a pandemic, yeah. in the midst of all these things that we're going through. I think that allows us to take heart and keep going. Yeah, totally agree. And at the end, there's a, there's a link here to uh, to other writings that I would highly, highly encourage you make a priority this Advent season. Hopefully it blesses you half as much as it blessed us. And with that, our week is done. But we hope that you will join us again Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.